you're not a fully emotional person. You're just right. a, you're just a perfect goddess of of wisdom and hamburger helper. What fresh hell! Laughing in the face of motherhood. Your kids are looking to you to be like, it's okay, it's all okay. With Margaret Abel's and Amy Wilson. There are other struggles that your kids can't know about. A podcast that solves today's parenting dilemmas so you don't have to. It's got to be okay for me not to be okay sometimes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What Fresh Hell podcast. This is Amy. And this is Margaret. And this week, we're talking about when mom struggles, when mom is on the struggle bus. I was taking notes of this episode, and I wrote, there's struggles, and then there's struggles. Like, there's this is a big umbrella topic, but uh, we're all we're all under it semi-frequently. Uh, yes. And I do want to say before we start this episode, I know a lot of people listen to the podcast with their kids, and usually we keep this very kid-friendly. This episode, we will be talking about struggles. So things like loss of a parent, things like addiction. And so if those are things you're not ready to discuss with your kids yet, you might want to have them skip this one. I have a very salient childhood memory of my mom who never raised her voice, you know, who always had it together. I remember her sitting at our kitchen table one day. I was about, I was 13, came home from eighth grade. I had two baby sisters. I had four younger siblings, but two baby sisters, a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And I came home and my mom like had her head in her hands. And I said, what's wrong? And she, she was crying and she's like, I'm just, I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. And she cried. And I, it rocked my world a little bit because I just was like, wait, like, wait a minute, you're this perfect being. You're just the receptacle for everything bad we ever have. And you don't have, you're not a fully emotional person. You're just right. a, you're just a perfect goddess of, of wisdom and hamburger helper. Like, what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? You it's can't basically it that scene from the apocalyptic movie where the whole city just starts to crumble or like the wave like crashes over Manhattan. You're like, this cannot happen. Right. Right. I was, I, and, and it lasted for seriously like five minutes and it happened once in my childhood, but, but boy, do I remember that being oh, like, what do you mean? I have exactly the same day. I, I was watching my mom load the dishwasher at some point and I realized that she was crying. I mean, I, and I, it's funny, like I load my dishwasher sometimes and that image comes back to me. That realization that your mom has an inner life that is not always happy is mind boggling. <laughs> yeah. Like, wait, what? Like, you're just a cardboard cutout of happy perfection. Like, how can you struggle? Yeah. I think this is a really interesting topic because I think it's something, you know, you're the research person, but I, I was Googling it a little bit before get, getting ready to talk to Janelle, who's going to be our guest later on. And I typed when mom struggles in Google and all of the results were like how to help your kids through their struggles, how to help their kids through your, like, it's amazing how much the orientation of all the writing and all the thinking is like, you're there for your kids. So I think it's really interesting to think about what happens when you flip the script. And, and it's something that I think about and I really don't know the answer for. Like when I'm struggling, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to talk to my kids about that? Let them in? but I don't want to burden my kids with stuff. So where's the line? It's really complicated because I think that this sort of uh, societal, I don't know, maybe it's biological. We have this need to feel like our mother is safe and protecting us and is, is never anything that isn't, isn't safe. And so therefore we're all invested in seeming perfect for our kids and like we're not struggling. 
And of course, then that just leads to further inability of our families to see that we are human beings with full emotional lives. Does that yes, make sense? Like, it does make sense. But I, I think sometimes we talk about that dismissively, like, oh, the problem is that we just keep this myth up that, but I actually think that is an important thing to do. Like you, you actually want your kids to see you as strong and in control and kind of infallible for a lot of reasons that play out in other ways. And so it's not just a myth that we should drop and be like, okay, kids, today was horrible. I really right. struggled. Like <laughs> right. you don't, you don't want it. There, there really, it really is a spectrum. And I'm not even sure that the middle of the spectrum, usually I'm like, it's a spectrum, stay in the middle. And on this one, I think that need of your kids to see you as that strong person is actually kind of an absolute. Right. And so actually, what do you do when you well, struggle? Maybe maybe it's the Brene Brown kind of thing that uh, if you guys don't know who I'm talking about, you can, I'll put, I'll put her up on the show notes, but you probably know who, who I'm talking about because her, her TED talk on shame and vulnerability has been viewed like 65 quintillion times. But she talks about the idea that the world views vulnerability as weakness when really vulnerability is strength. And uh, I think that there are sort of contained safe ways where our kids can see us upset about something, mourn about something like um, and, and, and it's still in a, in a safe way. And for them to for them to see that that can happen and they're still safe, I think, is actually a good thing, but even so, it's it's within a certain safe, constricted way to do it and not to do it. Although on the on the flip side of that, kids catastrophize and exponentialize problems in a way that adults don't. So here's an example. I got laid off from a job that I'd worked for about a year and a half, a couple of years ago. And I was kind of annoyed by the whole thing. And it was not income that we needed to survive, but the whole situation just was aggravating to me. And so you were I, more aggravated, you weren't devastated, but you were, you were aggravated. Yes. It wasn't like, oh my God, we have to sell the house and move. Like now mom's out of work. I, and so that's, was my internal, but I came home at night and I was upset. I was definitely not, not like weepy about it, but I was discombobulated by it. And I came home at night and we usually at our table at night, just mostly it started as an exercise of like keeping our kids at the table for more than 20 minutes, more than like shove food in, run back to whatever they were doing. So we have a little conversation at night, like what was your best part of the day? And I said, oh, I had a really bad part of my day. I actually got fired from my job because I didn't, I didn't say laid off. Cause it's like, what does that mean? And I said, it was really uh, frustrating and it made me in a bad mood. And then we kind of moved on. And the kids were kind of curious about it. Like, what? They they seemed it, it was exciting. And I'm assuming, wait, you're, I'm assuming that your your uh, husband like knew you, you weren't. You oh, weren't, yeah. My, no, yes, no, no, no. He yes. already knew. See, I wasn't introducing the information to him for sure. <laughs> um, but I, I explained it to my kids. Didn't think much of it. And then I went on with my day. And then at bedtime, I went up to read, tuck them in, whatever, give them 850 glasses of water. And my son, my oldest son, I think it was, was crying. And I said, what's wrong? And he's like, I just can't believe you got fired. Like, this is so terrible. And what are we going to do? And I realized that for an hour and a half, he had been processing that information as like the movie scene where dad's like, kids, I've lost my job. It's all over now, you know. And I 
approached it in this kind of cavalier way, not realizing that he was going to do the kid thing of taking a struggle of mine, a person who in his eyes never struggles, and multiplying that times several thousand. And by the time I got to him, he was so upset that I had to wind him all the way back from there. And that's kind of the problem, I think, when mom struggles. And in that case, he was very upset. You had the bandwidth to help. I mean, you were probably sort of like, I can't, oh boy, I can't believe I've stepped right, in Right, I blew this one, yeah. But at least, but you did have the bandwidth to sort of help him with that because it wasn't something you were actually devastated about. Right, what if right. It, what if you were and you shared it with him and now he's he's spiraling and you're you're already spiraled and, and then it's not, that's not a perfect situation either. It's not. And there's another example I've been thinking about Um, which is that I was involved in a really bad accident, a motorcycle accident with my now husband, who at the time was my boyfriend. We were involved in a head-on motorcycle crash. It was really bad. And I was in shock. I was on the bike and uh, they took David off. And I called my sister, but I was calm. So maybe like 45 minutes after, you know, it's like everything kind of moves slowly. I was getting a ride to the hospital to try to find David and find out how he was. And I called my sister and I said, I've been in an accident. David and I were on a bike and we were in an accident. And my sister, who's very good at this kind of thing, was like, it's okay, don't worry, you're fine. Don't worry, just calm down and explain (laughs) to me what's going on. And I said, well, we were, and she thought we, she thought we were on bicycles. She didn't realize I meant a motorcycle because I said bike. And I said, well, we were, we were driving in the canyons and we got hit and I'm explaining the whole story to her. And she keeps being like, it's okay. Just calm down. Just calm down. And then she said, but where is David? And I said, well, he's in the helicopter. They took him by helicopter. And she went, oh my God. And suddenly like I started, like I realized like the veil fell and her reaction made me realize that it really was as bad as I thought. Like, oh, you should not be in a helicopter at any time after an accident. That's not a minor accident. And so I think also the way that you react to things is like that for your kids. Like your kids are looking to you to be like, it's okay. It's all okay. But if if you say this is really bad, suddenly like the floor falls out from under your kids and they're like, oh my God. Yes. This is as bad as I thought. And, and for me, I find that that can also be kind of true for my spouse. Like my, if my kids don't want to see me cry. If they find that unsettling, my spouse doesn't love it either. Like if I'm, yeah. if I'm upset about <laughs> not something, a favorite, right. It's not like, Oh, here I am with some cocoa and a blanket. It's more like, what, like, uh, when are you going to stop being like this? Cause, uh, <laughs> cause right. You to be right. You're, you have one job being the rock for this family. (laughs) So this, this, this crying is not working for anybody really. Right. I I, I know a uh, life coach. Her name is Paige Nolan and uh, I'll put her up on the show page too. She's a fabulous person and a real, real wise woman. But she says, and, and I like this point of view that, you know, women are, women are cyclical. That's what we do. So you can, you can make your partner feel better about this when you're struggling. Like I'm going to cry, like I'm going to fall apart for, for a day and then I'm going to get my, or a month and then I'm going to get my act together because that's what, that's what women do. We know how to cycle. We know how to fall apart and come together again. I'm like, okay, that, that might, that might help. I'll try that the next time <laughs> I need to 
reassure somebody in the midst of my sorrow that it's not actually the end of the world. I think I've had that conversation, and I think most people have had the conversation with their husband. It's got to be okay for me not to be okay sometimes. Mm -hmm. Maybe not in front of the kids, but there's got to be a time where it's okay for you not to be okay all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just in... Europe, looking at a lot of churches. I've been I've been church heavy in the summer of 2018, and I I thought about this working on this episode. You know how um, there's this idea of Our Lady of Perpetual Sorrow. I was married at the Church of Our Lady of Sorrow. See, there you go. <laughs> there's, it was fun to put that on the invitation. So if you're not if you're not Catholic, there's the, the Our Lady of Sorrow is Jesus's mother, and it is sort of like the greatest iconography in all of Catholicism, right, is Sad Mary after Jesus dies. Yes, the Pieta. The Pieta, yeah. Sometimes she's holding his body and sometimes she's just kind of standing there, you know, looking on. Um, And her grief is totally something, you know, like there's churches named after it and paintings and paintings and paintings, but it's always like a very contained, safe, beautiful sort of grief. Like all over Spain, I was seeing statues of Sad Mary with sort of, you know, one glistening jeweled tear. Right. And, and I was thinking about that working on this episode. Like we, we were really fascinated with how, how did she feel when this went down? But right. we don't want to see her rending her garments and yelling and screaming and losing right. her mind. She's still like dignified in her grief. She's yeah. still kind of like calm, sad. Pretty grief. She was also yeah. like 30, right? At the time, right. it was right. an interesting, no, not 30. Okay. She was 45. Um, it, it's a, it's a weird, uh, it, it's a weird thing that we are so culturally invested in, like beautiful, sad mom. Um, right. and, and I think that that kind of comes to play on this stuff. Like it's not so pretty when it actually happens. And I guess for me, the central question is like, hide it from your kids or don't hide it from your kids. And I, think for me, I more hide it from my kids. I feel like I don't want to lay that on them. And yet I, I try to open it to them while not pulling that, oh my God, he's in the helicopter floor out from under them. I think that's kind of where I come out on it. So I, like yeah. uh, my mom passed away a year ago. She got sick fairly quickly and I was very frontline in, in dealing with her illness and, and helping her out. And, and then she passed away. And so I was suddenly pretty much gone from the family for kind of a month. Like I was always over at the hospital or at the house and, and just dealing with stuff. And my husband just kept saying to my kids, you know, grandma's sick and, uh, that's why mom is not here. And I came home one night in time to put the kids to bed. And my son said to me, is grandma going to die? And I said, yeah, you know, I think she is like, that's where we really are with this. And I said, it just really makes me feel sad. But I, I tried to contextualize for her, for him a little bit, you know, she's sick and this is what happens and kind of walked him through it. And it's funny, my two, so he was eight at the time. My six and five-year-old did not dial into it at all. I mean, we went to the funeral. There was a casket. They understood. We went to the graveyard. My eight-year-old had a million questions. 
His questions were, again, though, not very much like, how is this for you, mom? Right. His questions were very practical. I think returning to the advice of answer the question you are asked is always a good frontline thing for when you're struggling. Like, whatever the question happens to be, and w- there's a famous story around this that I broke it to my son. Yes, I think grandma's going to die. We, that's sad. We talked about it for a while. Then I went down the hall to put my daughter to bed, and then when I came back... My son was, you know, very teary and, and very thoughtful. And I said, well, how how are you feeling? And he said, I'm just sad because, you know, grandma's a total goner. <laughs> I was like, well, the good news is you've understood the situation. I don't think that's how we're going to refer to it outside of this room. But yes, like he was processing it as an eight-year-old. And that, I think the touchstone is like, how do you process this? How is it appropriate for your kid to process this as fill in the age? So like, how is it appropriate for a two-year-old to process this? Probably not going to be that much on their radar. My five-year-old, it was really, and my five-year-old's named after my mom. They were close. We used to have lunch every Wednesday. And it really struck me that it did not seem to affect her at all, almost. Well, we, we talked about in the last episode about how the age, the developmental age that you are at when major life events happen affect you completely differently. So there's that's the perfect example. Yeah. And so I think that maybe there's a key to it in having age-appropriate conversations with kids about what you are struggling with. I think keeping in mind that a lot of emotionality and a lot of falling apart on your part is very traumatic for kids and that to the degree that you can control that, you can control it. It occurs to me that there are sort of two types of struggle here. And this is, this is the first type. This is a, and the hardest one, I think, an extremely difficult moment for you. Yes. Losing your parent and a struggle that you could not hide from your children, even if you wanted to, it's happening. It's their grandmother. They're going to be going to the funeral so, so you have, in that case, no choice but to figure out how you're going to, in the midst of your grief and sadness and anger and everything, sort of render that into an understandable package for your children so they see it, but not too much. And that's must have been really hard, but it seems to me you didn't really have a choice. You had to do that. And then there are other exactly. struggles. Right. There, there are other struggles that your kids can't know about. Um, um, you know, or can't know about yet or shouldn't know about. Right. Like when your marriage is falling apart or when you're struggling with addiction. And, and I am interested to kind of hear from Janelle on this. Like this is, her struggle is something that happened in front of her children, but they were very young, but still, it's still, it's not like they missed it, but it's not like they can fully understand everything that happened and how do you sort of how do you sort of know how much to let them in and when to let them in when it's a very sensitive topic that your kids might not be ready to handle yet so i think with that we should go to our interview with janelle and then we will be back to discuss this topic more beach body on demand is back as a sponsor this week if you're like me you discovered online fitness as a way to keep your sanity during these last couple of months and with beach body on demand you get instant access to 1300 different workouts you can stream anytime I first learned about Beachbody, and you may have too, from P90X, which is an insanely effective workout, I will say, fun and 
highly intense, but Beachbody also has yoga, bar, dance. There's a kids and family collection to get everybody moving. It's a huge, huge range of classes. And some of the classes get you results fast. By the time it would have taken you to drive to the gym, you did the 10-minute trainer, you're done. You can use Beachbody on your computer, tablet, phone, smart TV, anywhere you are. Listeners of the What Fresh Health podcast can try Beachbody for free. You can get a special free Beachbody trial membership when you text LAUGHING to 303030. You will get free full access to the entire Beachbody On Demand platform. All the workouts, all the support, all the content, totally free by texting LAUGHING to 303030. 30 30. Check it out. Bombas makes the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. I am actually happy when I open my sock drawer and I see those Bombas peeking out. Amy, they spark joy. I'm glad to hear that. And you wouldn't think that socks could spark joy, but I know that you're right because I feel the same way. I mean, who would have thought it, Amy? Who would have thunk it? They're like a little bit of happiness in my morning when I have Bombas to put on because they they just get all the little details right. The cotton is snuggly in a way that I can't fully express. There's no toe seam. <laughs> And there's a part across the middle that's like knit a little differently. So it sort of hugs the arch of your foot. It makes me happy. And I don't care what people say. I love Bombas. I want you to work on expressing about the toe seam, Amy. That's an assignment for (laughs) you. These socks do more than keep your feet cozy though, Amy. For every pair you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. We're talking 34 million pairs of socks and counting through their nationwide network of three thousand giving partners. Give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash laughing. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash laughing for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash laughing. Hi, everyone. We're back and I am here talking to Janelle Hanchett, who is the author of the new book, I'm just happy to be here, a memoir of renegade mothering. She is also the creator of the blog, Renegade Mothering, which I'm sure many of you already read. Hi, Janelle. Hi, how are you? Good, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I thought you would be a perfect person to talk to because you have this fabulous memoir that I loved and it talks about your struggle and will you tell us, it's a kind of very long, complicated story, but Tell us a little bit about the story of your life and your life as a mom. I'll do a nice condensed version. Um, (laughs) I mean, we could do like three hours with Janelle, just so you understand. But this is the the postcard version before you read the book. So I had my first child at, I found out I was pregnant when I was 21. um, And I had known my child's father, who through a series of miracles and oddities is still my husband um for three months. I mean all of our all of our husbands are still our husbands through a series of miracles and oddities right. but even more so in your well case. I mean I don't know I'm, I'm not trying to like one-up people on the like marriage <laughs> difficulty oh, scale no. you've, but you've got us believe me I consider ourselves like, wound up just because he was 19 I was 21 we were drunk for three months and then I got pregnant I mean that was our that was our trajectory. Okay, so you're you're drinking, it's three months, suddenly there's a baby. Right, so baby, I'm senior year of college, and I think that having a baby is like adding an accessory to your life, like this little thing you dress up, and, you, and then you just stay you with the baby. And I don't know how exactly I got that idea. So finished college, had my baby, got married in, on a cold December day in front of a courthouse, um, mostly for tax purposes, and... Moved in with my husband's family so that I could stay home with her, and I fell into a really deep 
depression. And I and at that point, you know, I'd always been sort of an overzealous drinker. Let's just say that. And uh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, it's cute. It's cute. But, you know, the, the <laughs> stakes were kind of low because I was in college, you know, and it was sort of like everybody was doing it type thing. And and then everybody wasn't. And I had a baby and I had a job and we moved into this suburban house and I tried, you know, pretty hard to live a normal life as kind of air quotes they said we should and that it would work. And I really started relying on alcohol for a sense of peace and relief that it gave me in the face of all that was going on with motherhood and marriage and sort of my whole world turned upside down. Was postpartum part of that for you? I was actually diagnosed with postpartum depression. They said it was borderline psychosis. So yeah, there was definitely a chemical component to it. But I also think there's an identity shift and a grieving process that we just don't talk about. I always imagined the motherhood door and you opened it and on the other side was motherhood where you were calm and happy and contented. I I thought there was a career door too where you walked in and you had a job. Yeah, oh, there are right. no doors. Like you just no, there are no doors. You're the same per- as my aunt has an expression which I love. Wherever you go, the problem is you have to take your head with you, and like you take your head with you to the other side of the door. I always say, you know, that motherhood is supposed to turn me into a better version of myself, but I'm the same jerk I, w- <laughs> I was before. And you didn't make anything easier by having a kid. No, I didn't. I, it was a, it was a yeah. So um, my drinking progressed, and though I have a history of alcoholism in my family and drug addiction, um, I of course thought. I was going to be the one who handled it and managed it and beat it and uh, could drink safely and moderately. Fun fact, I could not. And as it progressed, I, you know, I had another child thinking that would sort of clean up my life. I was drinking more and more and I eventually lost my kids for two years. My mother took them from 2007 to 2009. Um, I was a cocaine addict and a late stage alcoholic and addict who was in and out of rehabs and a mental institution. Um, and I finally got sober in 2009, which, you know, is the sort of right. moment that took a lot to get to. <laughs> and then I started, and so I felt I was 30 years old. I was newly sober. And uh, my husband and I, we decided to have another child. And so I was 30. I was had three kids, 31, three kids, okay. reunited <laughs> with my family in this house. And I felt sort of woken up, like dropped into motherhood with this fresh eyes, because though I was technically a mother, I I wasn't really engaged. I wasn't really there. I mean, as I wrote in the book, I didn't even know how to drive my kids to school when I got sober. And I sort of woke up in motherhood and went, whoa, what's, what's this about? And I started seeking my experience of motherhood, of feeling both of the struggle, as you said. I mean, just feeling both unbelievably grateful to be back with my family, especially under the circumstances that I, that I came back. Most women like me, unfortunately, don't usually end up where I ended up. And that was never lost on me. But but simultaneously feeling pretty erased, pretty bored, pretty over it. And, you know, is this all there is type thing? And why do I feel so so massively ill-equipped for this responsibility? And also, am I even interested in it? <laughs> How is this all my job? Um, was this a good idea at all? And I started looking. <laughs> was this a good idea? That was the alternate title for our podcast. Was this a good idea? That's amazing. What I like so much about your book is, and I've been recommending it to people, and it's a little bit tough because people are like, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I wasn't an addict. I didn't have this journey. But I think what it captures is so much about what it feels like for everyone as a mom. Right. Like that feeling of the doorway to perfect motherhood that seems to appear. Have you ever seen the movie Waitress? No. 
It's, I mean, spoiler alert, although this movie has been out for like 15 years, so I don't feel that bad about this spoiler, but it's basically about a woman who has an abusive relationship. She gets pregnant. She doesn't want the baby. She doesn't want the baby. She doesn't know what to do with this abusive guy. And then she gives birth and it's like in the film, it's shot really beautifully and like the whole room kind of spins and this rosy glow comes over her and she kind of looks up at the abusive guy and she says, get out. The Mm. idea is like, she's had the motherhood moment where she, Mm. everything's going to change for her. Oh, that's such a sweet story. It's too bad. It's. I do think it happens for some people. I do think for some people they have that experience of like, motherhood is this new revelation that brings all this new joy into their life. But I like to talk about the people for whom that's not, how it goes. And that was sort of what I was so messed with. It's like, yeah, and, and especially, you know, people come at you with, well, don't you love your children? I mean, th- there's this idea that our imperfection is a reflection of our lack of love. And that's really what the book was exploring. You know, does motherhood turn us into better versions of ourselves? And if not, what do we do with that? Like, where do we go from there? And, you know, is it necessarily a, a love or a lack of love? Um, and is it even fair to to associate motherhood with with this sanctimony and this washing of our souls that turns us into pristine versions of ourselves, you know? Right. And spoiler alert again, it doesn't. It, right. I mean, it didn't for me. I, I think it doesn't for almost anybody, for most people. But we don't want to talk about that because then we're bad mothers, right? Like if we actually say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually not super great at this. What Amy and I were discussing as we had this conversation before is the idea of like the kind of figurehead of the mom, the mom that is perfect, that is the rock for their children. And that really, truly developmentally, kids do see you in that way. They look to their mom to say, my mom is sort of a cardboard cutout of the person who takes care of me. And the idea that that person has an inner life or struggles that are not related to me is developmentally a very hard thing for kids to understand. Not hard thing. It's an impossible thing for kids to understand. Right. So I'm interested as you went through this struggle, your struggle is addiction. Other people's struggle might be anxiety, being in a bad marriage, struggling at work. How do you balance letting your kids in on that struggle and not kind of handing that struggle to your kids. Wow, that's that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Amy and I kept saying in the beginning, yeah, that is a hard question. It's, it is. It's a hard question because, I mean, if the goal is, of course, to to allow our children to witness the complexity of, of ourselves because, A, not letting them see that is sort of lying, right? I mean, right. trying to... I, I've also seen a lot of damage done in families where everybody pretends everything is perfect and then, you know, the bomb drops. And I have no interest in that. On the other hand, I've also seen what overburdening children looks like and in my own experience of of feeling like I needed to save my mother and that her job, you know, that she was suffering and that that I had some power to fix her or heal her pain. And that, I think, is the critical difference, right? Like, for me, I'm not going to dodge my history. I mean, I still go to meetings every week. I'm part of the program. So my kids my kids know I'm an alcoholic. They know I don't drink. They know why. They do not know about drugs because I don't want to normalize drug use in my family. So I'm not just an open book spilling everything to, to my children. But um, there are certain things I'm not going to dodge And also, it's like just like a daily thing of like, when I lose my temper, when I act really badly, like, what do you do with that? My husband and I scream at each other. I mean, that happens. Sorry. Wait, your husband and you scream at each other? I know. I know. I know. We got to kick you off this podcast. I know. We're perfect. Even just little things of like, how do we manage when we blow it or when I behave badly? I mean, sometimes I say things to my teenager where I'm like, wow. That was inappropriate. That was really... (laughs) 
really mature. For me, one of, what's really important and what I always try to do is to include them or show them the whole story. Hmm. I'm struggling now. This is why I'm struggling. And here's what I'm doing to take care of myself. And you don't have to worry because husbands and wives fight. You know, people die. Then this is what we're going to do to get through it. And I'm not perfect. And I apologize to you for screwing up. And I'm going to try to do better in the future. And I feel like the whole story is a really interesting touchstone. Yes. yes. Like, I'm right. I'm not going to tell you part of the story. I'm going to tell you in a developmentally appropriate way, the whole story. And that's exactly what, I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do, right? Is, is open up to the extent that their, that their maturity allows not putting too much on, but, and also always reassuring that it isn't on them, that we're okay. And I, and I, and, and I think that I th- but I think that even more about than talking about it is the witnessing of it, right? Like actually doing it. So actually taking care of yourself and actually demonstrating how to get through these tough times, right? Yes. Like- I mean, we unfortunately very often come back to on this podcast the reality that your kids are going to treat people the way you treat people and they're going to act in the way you act and they're going to respond to adversity in the way that they've seen you respond to adversity. So as much as you'd like to be like, where's the secret book about what I tell them? The way you live your life is the thing that actually matters and how they come out, which is kind of onerous and annoying. Yeah. Uh, The other thing that I really want to focus on about the book, because this was the takeaway for me, is I think there's so much anxiety for moms around the idea of struggling. Yes. That this constant inner dialogue and anxiety that moms have of like, we're failing, we're not doing it as well. Look on Facebook, they're taking their kids to Italy, their kids speak Mandarin, oh my God, (laughs) their kids are on the travel soccer team. Like, basically you're running, da-da-da-da-da-da, inner dialogue is like, I'm failing and everyone else is doing well. And what I love about this memoir is that you read it and you have, and like, I'm, I'm trying to say this in a way that like, is not offensive, but... You won't offend me, I promise. The center of this book is like an epic motherhood fail in sort of the most profound epic. level, right? Like that you right. were not functional enough to be around your children for two years. Like, mm-hmm. And the story of the book is like, the kids are all right. Like, mm-hmm. And so that what I want people to read, why I want people to read this book and what I want them to take away from it is like, it is really okay to struggle. And you, your epic fail of like, I screamed at you because we were late for soccer compared Mm -hmm. really Janelle to your kind of epic fail Mm -hmm. of like, I was out of the picture for two years. Everybody recovers from those things and it turns out okay. That's exactly why I wrote the book. It worked. Thank you. And that was precisely what I was going for. It's like, hey guys, I failed in like a very major real way. And it wasn't cute and it wasn't fun to talk about. And it was very legitimately harmful. And we all came back and there was a lot of, of, of action that had to take, that had to happen. Right. I mean, on my end, on everyone, my husband and a lot of recovery in terms of, you know, teaching and showing my children that that wasn't going to happen again. And, but, but yeah, I mean, on a very basic level, the book is saying really pretty bad things can happen and somehow we can survive and be happy. I mean, and if you, you know, and my family is like a really happy, normal family right now. And nobody would believe uh, where I was 10 years ago. Nobody. Oh, this makes me a little emotional to talk about it. But um, some good friends of ours 
just recently asked us if we would um, be on their will to take their three children if if her mother couldn't. Wow. M- Mac and I were sitting there in the car and, you know, it kind of made us cry. It kind of made us really emotional just to think about, like, wow, like these people know us very, very well and um, and and they would be willing to trust us with, with their children. And, of course, we would do that. And they, they said something about that they would want our kids to be their kids' siblings and that they've seen the way we've raised children and who these kids are. And that, you know, I mean, that's... It gives me chills to talk about just because the, the, the amount of recovery that's possible and the amount of healing that's possible. And I really wanted people to see that you can go down pretty freaking far and come back. We can come back from these daily little things that we think are huge deals, right? Right. If I can be a source of serenity or some um, some just basic chill factor among moms, <laughs> like I would love my, I wanted my story to be that mothers. Well, it was for me. And I want our listeners to check out the book. Janelle Hanchett, I'm just happy to be here. A memoir of renegade mothering. Janelle, I love this question because it's like from the 1950s. Where can we get the book? Like we pretty much all know how to get books, but let's just go through it anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, it's at, uh, it should be at a local indie store. I like to say that first, um, or you can ask them to order it. It's on um, Indie Bound online. It's also at all the big places, Amazon. Barnes and Noble. And if your library doesn't have it, you can go to your library and request it and they'll order it for you. Yes. And that is incredibly helpful to authors, by the way, requesting books at the library, even if you read it and you like it. Still request it. And your blog is? RenegadeMothering.com. And I'm all over social media um, as Renegade Mothering as well. Okay. So guys, Google it, Renegade Mothering, and you'll find Janelle. Janelle, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, we're back. I mean, what I think is so interesting about Janelle's story and how it fits into what we're talking about is that in some ways her struggle was away from her kids. Um, but in this, in another way, like she was, it was kind of more something that she couldn't hide from her kids. Mm-hmm. Like they obviously knew about it. I mean, mm-hmm. she left the family for two years and then had to come back and, and now has this kind of ongoing struggle that they're obviously aware of that like addiction is kind of part of the language of their lives. I think Janelle really kind of challenges my notion of like create rosy world for your children and do not let anything pierce the veil. She had no choice. I mean, the veil was like ripped into a thousand pieces and everybody in their family obviously went through this difficult journey. But on the other side, they're all kind of OK. Yeah, it's remarkable. And it's kind of a nice reminder of that thing of like, and I do think this is part of our shared Irish Catholic heritage. Struggles are secret. (laughs) It's sort of our point, our worldview. And I feel very attached to that. Like don't hang stuff on your kids and your struggles are your struggles and you're going to freak your kids out if you're running around. And, but here's a situation where like this struggle become so enmeshed with their whole lives. And then she has this super interesting thing where like there's two older kids who were part of it and two younger kids who only know it as history, you know? And that goes back to like our older kids, younger kids dynamic of like, well, people experience this very, very differently. What I want to take away from Janelle's story is the comfort in the fact that like, I think we get very hung up in this idea of like, I cried once in front of my kids and now they're going to remember it when they're loading the dishwasher (laughs) as a mom, which is true. Which is true. (laughs) But that trying to let go a little bit of the idea that like the only way through this is to maintain the like 
marble Madonna facade of like, I have one bejeweled tear when something goes wrong, but I am the portrait of strength. I think the real problem for us as Irish Catholics in particular, but uh, a lot of women is that uh, hiding it from your kids is one thing, but hiding it from everybody as if you're going to get a gold star for how well you're handling your invisible struggle that nobody knows you're struggling with. That doesn't, it doesn't really work. And, and I feel like my takeaway thinking about all of this is that if you're not going to, if it's something you can't talk to your kids about fully or yet or at all, talk to somebody about it. Don't, don't just, uh, you know, find, just don't just keep it all inside. You gotta, you gotta talk it out with somebody. And that seems obvious, but there are times when I have not done that. Yeah. And I think also like, meet the struggles as they come. I have a close friend who lost her husband at a young age and she had young children. I think it's interesting like how people handled it with their kids. And I think, you know, there's people who say like, oh, well, I can't bring my kids to the funeral because they're not ready to face this. And it's like, well, their friend is facing it no matter what you're dealing with. So maybe the lesson is like, we do hard things for our friends. Like, don't get so caught in the lesson of like, I am shielding my kids from difficult things that you kind of miss the struggle that just met you. Like you, it's a struggle is like a boulder on the road, kind of like you've got to go over it or around it or through it somehow. And I think the idea of like pretend boulder is not there is the one thing you should skip. Yeah. You can figure out how to go over around it or through it. But the only real mistake I think you can make with a struggle is, and Going back to the accident that I had with my husband, when I got to the hospital, so I get to the hospital and he's in pretty bad shape. And they're saying, you know, there are two things, two areas of his body that are kind of touch and go. Like he might have this aortic tear and he might have this like bladder rupture. Either one of them is potentially fatal. Therefore, we have to wait and see a little bit. And I didn't know my in-laws now, but I'd never met them. And I, my sister and I discussed it and I said, I'm going to wait to call them until I have a little bit more information. Like, I don't want to call them. They're, they're a flight, an airline flight away and be like, it's touch and go. Like, let me see if in an hour I know more so that I can call them and either say, they're not going to get here in that hour, you know? Mm -hmm. So why don't I spare them the hour of he may or may not make it and just talk to them when I know more information. And that I think is a good mindset to think about with your kids. Like when to introduce the struggle to them is important too, right? Yes. Like the like you said, like you're struggling with your husband. Things are not going well. Like you don't know whether or not you're, you don't need to read your kids into that situation. Like dad and I are not really sure how this is going to turn out. Right. That's not probably the, the wrong time to right. read them in. But also realize that kids are not as dumb as we think they are. Like they're picking up on information. You know, they're, I think a lot of times when we think we're hiding things from our kids, we're not hiding them as much as we think they are. That's right. And that's, and, and that's not great either. And it, and it occurs to me, you're saying that the, the boulder, don't, don't pretend it's not there when it gets put in your path, that it doesn't have to be, the struggles are going, going to come up and they don't have to be a worse thing for your life. You see what I'm saying? That that I, I think my kids' relationship with me is closer and stronger for the times that they have seen me cry and struggle and mm. be honest with them in a safe way, yes, yes, about what's going on in my life. For them to see me as a real person, it, it might make it a little bit less scary the next time it happens. I guess that's right. God, I am so resist. I realize how resistant I am to that. <laughs> 
And I even, I mean, I do it throughout my life. Like, I'm fine. I'm fine. That's what I lead with the statement. I'm fine all the time. And I do think that's something that maybe I could work on a little bit of like being fine and being okay is not the most important thing. The most important thing is saying, hey, this is hard and I'm struggling and it's going to be okay. I worry about doing that in front of my kids. I really do. I realize that talking about it. Have you seen the Serena Williams Instagram post? She had postpartum depression after she had her baby and had all kinds of health struggles. Like she was, you know, very, her life was in danger right after the baby was born. Everything was okay. She gets back to her first tennis tournament. And I think it was the Australian Open. I'm not sure, but there was a, there was a tennis tournament she had to drop out of. And I think we all look at her like, okay, that's, that's the one who has everything, right? That she was performing right. in this tournament at all is completely unlikely. So she, she put out this Instagram post and she, she wrote in the post, last week wasn't easy for me. I'm dealing with some stuff. I'm not where I want to be in my career. I'm not seeing my baby enough. I'm struggling with these postpartum anxiety feelings still. But what I do is I talk to my mom and my sisters about it. And, and it's totally normal to feel this way. And I'm going to keep trying. And I think people just rushed into that because if there's anybody who looks like she really has her act right, together, it's right. Serena Williams. And she's struggling with these things too. But I'm really grateful that she talked about that because it's going to make it easier for the next million women to call their sisters and say, I'm really struggling with this, with this thing. And if Serena Williams doesn't have her act together, even though she looks like she does, if she's struggling, then it's okay that we do also. It's a tiered system when you struggle. And like the first tier for most of us is probably girlfriends and sisters and like our women tribe, you know, who we go to and we talk about our struggles and we hang on to each other and lift each other up. And like that is level one of the tier. And then kind of second tier is our spouses because that's a fraught thing. Like I have found it's, it's not always an easy dynamic for my spouse and I to work through our struggles together. Cause there's just a lot loaded into that. Right. And I find this, I mean, I, I'm not accusing my husband of this. When my husband comes to me and is like, I'm not sure, you know, I'm having this horrible problem and it's making me feel very unsure. I'm kind of like, dude, my lifeboat is full right now. Like I, your one job is to tell me it's all going to be okay. Like it's hard for my husband to bring struggles to me too, because it's just very loaded for us. Like we're co-captaining a lifeboat and it's like, you're not allowed to turn to the other person and be like, I think the sharks are going to get us. Like you have to just keep rowing that is necessarily fraught and that's okay. Then I think underneath that, like down that ladder a bit is your kids, like older kids to younger kids down the ladder. So like your youngest kids and they, like when my mom passed away, this happened, I'm sad about it. They saw me crying about it, but I wasn't going to them at bedtime and being like, you guys have to help me. I'm not okay. Like that, you, that that's your, that's what happens with your girlfriends. And this is really, I'm like really having an aha moment about it. Like that's exactly how it played out for me with my mom. Like I went, first people I went to was my girlfriends. I talked to my husband about it and then like I informed my kids about it. But I think that's where the divide that we're talking about is that like, and Janelle touched on this a little bit, like you give your kids an awareness of the struggle and you let them see you struggle, but you don't hand them, you never hand them your struggle. Okay. You present I'm, your struggle, but you'd never give the, it to them. Yes. 
I yes. like that metaphor. I That's like really that. working I'm, for me. I'm still I'm still uh, working through it, but I like it too. But you know, like I think that the, when we start talking about, it, I was kind of lost in it. But I do think that's the line. Like they can see you carrying your burdens. You're just not allowed to be like, here, you take some of them so that I, I have less. They need to see you successfully carrying your burdens, even Correct. which doesn't mean no tears, which doesn't right. mean no upset. And and it means full range of human feelings and, and show them that having that range is safe. Like that's actually a gift for your kids, I think, to, yes. to see like mom cries. Sometimes mom thinks I can't take this anymore. Sometimes, uh, you know, adults feel overwhelmed and then it gets better. That's exactly right. Because, and I think the idea of death and the idea of losing a parent and the idea of bad things happening is really scary for kids. And with my six-year-old, it manifests in like, come check my bed for monsters still. But with my nine, almost 10-year-old, it's starting to manifest more of like, what happens if someone dies? And if they've seen you struggle, you're a little bit more prepared to say like, hey, we, we've seen some hard things and we're okay. Right. They're, they're less afraid and more ready for the struggle if they don't think that there have been no struggles and that the the uh, the goal of adulthood is the one shiny bejeweled tear. Right. That, that it's yes. that it's no cracks. Amy, I really liked this conversation. I feel like I really I got somewhere with it. Me, too. And, I, you know, and, and I guess my main takeaway is when I'm struggling with something, I'm going to make sure to tell somebody if I can't tell my kids yet. Tell, talk to somebody about it. Use your ladder of trust. Use your ladder lady of friends trust. at the top two-year-olds at the very bottom. <laughs> the ladder of trust. It's a ladder of trust. But wait, that would mean you were getting on the ladder at the top and then climbing down. Listen, Amy, <laughs> you're going to start picking my metaphors apart. We're going to have a real problem. You and I just want to okay? understand it. When I, when, I, when I need the ladder of trust, I just want to understand it. It's a ladder of trust, start but you can fly, okay? <laughs> so you fly to the top of the ladder, Okay. We want to thank Janelle Hanchat for being with us today. You can get her book, I'm Just Happy to Be Here, a memoir of renegade mothering. And we'll put the link up on our website, which is whatfreshhellpodcast.com. You can also always find us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash whatfreshhellcast. And also Instagram, whatfreshhellcast, and Twitter at WFHpodcast. All right, guys, good luck with all the struggles you're struggling, and we will talk to you next week. Bye.